Welcome to the Tea Room. I'm Kate Swanell. Clearly the COVID response is something where the whole staff pulled together and really went beyond the pale. There was such a sense of mission. We were essential workers. Many of us yeah. were working in here. Oratory people had to come in. They were here at all crazy hours. You know, our people were coming to work and working damned hard. That has to be the crowning achievement. Professor John Skerritt is the Deputy Secretary for Health Products Regulation within the Australian Department of Health. That makes him boss of the wash at the Therapeutic Goods Administration. On the 18th of April, he will retire from the role he's filled since 2012, leaving behind an agency he helped create from scratch. I'm delighted to have Professor Skerritt in the Tea Room today for a chat about an achievement-filled time at the TGA and also some of the more controversial moments. How's it feeling with, what, two weeks to go? Oh, two and a bit. I mean, still busy because I'm not exactly going off to play lawn bowls and have a $12 chicken schnitzel. Uh, (laughs) My I seem to have ended up on about 10 different uh, advisory committees to government and and, and universities. I've got a number of adjunct positions, which is sure. staying unpaid, as are my government advisory committees. I'm playing a, doing an awful lot of stuff on building the messenger RNA framework in Australia, both therapeutics and vaccines. You know, I mean, we've all had the success of COVID vaccines, but the question is what comes next? So it's been a pretty hectic, what is it, 11 years? Ten and a half. I hadn't expected to be here that long, but there was a number of things. So first of all, I was hired to set up a joint regulator with New Zealand, kicked along for a few years, and then change of government said, no, 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 we don't want to do that. <laughs> but by the way, we want to totally reform the regulatory framework. We then had a few years of root and branch reforms, and they were the biggest reforms in 30 to 50 years. We had a few other reforms we had to get on top of, such as the use of strong opioids and so forth, things that were really important for patient safety and also a number of medical device reforms. After uh, Senate inquiries and things like gynae mesh and uh, hip joints. And then it got a little bit quiet and then a thing called COVID came along. It's it's been hectic. It's always a way. No one knows what's around the next corner. And and just when the 70-hour weeks went back to 50-hour weeks, something new came along each. It's a good opportunity for someone else to have a go. COVID is still with us, but uh, of course, it's at a different level. We've also relocated, if you look behind me, that's our new laboratories building. We've relocated into our new campus. So for 30 years, moving uh, 700 people to a new site uh, over the last 12 months has been a big deal too. One more thing, only one more really big thing left that uh, will keep me pretty busy in the next few weeks is looking at the nicotine vaping regulatory framework. Let's have a chat about that because there are regulations there now, but clearly there's some some holes, ways around those regulations. What role can the TGA play? play, do you think, in stopping this stuff getting to kids? One of the biggest holes emerged because the previous government brought in for four or five days and then repealed it, uh, controls on the border. And in the absence of requiring import permits and so forth, that's the biggest hole. So pallet loads of this stuff come in without requirement for import permits, ends up distributed to tobacconists, 7-Eleven, online sales and all sorts of things. So government's got to make a policy decision of whether they want to do something at the border. Now, I'm not going to preempt any decisions of government because those final decisions are still being discussed among cabinet members. So so that was the biggest gap. And you saw that we did a recent consultation and our role really is to, and it's the same whether we're consulting about medical device or medicine reforms or vaping reforms. I mean, people Mm -hmm. think we make up the rules. We don't. Our role is to identify what options could be feasible in law and in practice, a range of options out there, get feedback, put it up to ministers, and sometimes for really big things like nicotine vaping, it will involve all of Cabinet, not just the health minister, and they make the decision and then we 
implement uh, what is decided. That, that's that, that's the separation between the bureaucracy and uh, the elected government, and that's the way it should be in a democracy. The interesting thing, Kate, is that two years ago, when the prescription model came in, in the lead up to it, there was a bit of sitting on the fence in public opinion, in the media and so forth. Was this a too strong a move, Australia was unique, etc. 95% of them are running saying we have a crisis with kids, even primary school kids, especially high school kids, and yep. also young young adults who are getting hooked on nicotine because nicotine is a hugely addictive substance and, yep. and it's not a very healthy substance. So I believe that while there will always be some who say, look, if people want to do something stupid and get hooked on nicotine or jump in front of a car, they it's a free world. I think the overwhelming view in the media and in the public discourse is that uh, we don't want Australia to become hooked on nicotine. We've spent 50 years getting getting off cigarettes. And I think there is an appetite for change. But really, that's a decision of our political masters. The other thing that um, when I told my colleagues I was chatting to you today, uh, one of them leapt in with a, a list of questions he wanted me to ask you. Oh. He's, I know, I know. He, he's doing a story on um, uh, these online men's health portals like yeah. Pilot and Mosh. And he went online with Pilot and he did the questionnaire to uh, about their weight loss program, which basically involves them prescribing Saxenda. And he filled in a, a questionnaire and at no point were his answers checked. At no point did they actually put eyeballs on him to see if, make sure he wasn't an anorexic. And then they said, you qualify, we'll give you Saxenda for $395 a month, which sounds expensive, but you're going to save money on booze and food. So what the hell? And there's very little insight as to how that patient is going to be managed once they've bought in and, and, and who's going to manage them. What's the TGA's view on portals like this? Apart from anything else, yeah, they're well, listing a bunch of drugs. Does that yeah. count as promoting those drugs? Uh, you know? Possibly. And I, I just started to say the devil is in the detail. Now, there's yeah. issues both of medical practice, yes. and you'll be aware that the medical board has recently done a consultation about what a consultation, including a telehealth consultation, should mean and whether, therefore, websites, email, text-based consultations generally mm -hmm. are valid consultations or whether it should be considered as not good medical practice. So there's a whole lot of regulatory powers that the medical board and then through APRA can bring into play against mm -hmm. individuals who run such clinics if it's deemed that it's not a genuine practice or even further if a registered medical practitioner hasn't been involved. Our role is that obviously for provision of a Schedule Four medicine, you either have to be under the Special Access Scheme or it has to be registered in Australia or authorised prescriber. Now, there are a few loopholes there with personal importation and so forth. The second area where we become involved is that if it's quite clear that a Schedule Four is being provided without a registered medical practitioner involved. And a few years ago, we won a $10 million, million court case for peptides being sold over the web when right. there's no evidence of a medical doctor involved. Now, unfortunately, we didn't get the $10 million because the company went bankrupt, but it did close that down. Just recently, we have won another court case of $2.5 million against the SARMs, bodybuilding Schedule 4s being offered in southern Sydney. So we do have teeth, but it's totally in the context. So unfortunately, in some of these fairly poor quality medical practice examples, mm. there actually is a doctor involved. It might be a doctor sitting at a computer terminal who's paid an exorbitant yep. amount an hour, and you can argue about the ethics and 
and quality of care he or she is getting. But you can understand there's actually quite a long trail. We had to show the peptide stuff, but there was no registered doctor involved. Now, some right. of these things do involve a doctor. Now, you can argue whether it's appropriate practice. So we can and we do do things, but it's not just a case of bang, you're, that's wrong, you're illegal, we're going to fine you. It sounds like it's a question for the college as well. Well, the colleges also have a role, but of course, often these yeah. people, you don't have to be an endocrinologist to prescribe uh, an anti-diabetic medication. You yeah. know, sometimes the colleges are equally horrified. The other thing that I've been writing a bit about lately is medicine shortages, which obviously has been exacerbated by the COVID situation and supply chains and all of that. What's your take on why the shortages is happening and should we be manufacturing our own? And, and if so, well, what kind of role would TGA play? It's a dilemma. In? So actually the number of shortages is not higher than it has been historically in the last few years. Numbers are not higher, but but we've had a few high-profile ones, whether it's the anti-diabetics, whether it's the antibiotics, whether it's some of the steroids. And, you know, the profile comes and goes. If it's a medicine used by a smaller number of people or there's a lot of alternatives, you don't mm-hmm. see it. The challenge with local manu- manufacturers is that with the – well, there's two challenges. Firstly, I had uh, a journalist ask me uh, not long ago with uh, a Zempic, for example, yes. uh, well, surely they could just whip up another factory and make more of it. Now, I don't know if you've seen the structure of that molecule. It's a very complex molecule. And I think that even the companies with all the patents and the and the expertise would take one and a half to two years to build another factory to actually get manufacture of it up and running. There's a certain naivety to think that, you know, you can just click your fingers and suddenly you can make more azempic. Mm. On the other hand, a lot of the more common shortages, if it's amoxicillin or dexamethasone, these things are being manufactured in India and China for a couple of dollars a packet. Australia, it will cost $20 a packet to make them. So and is that just because of labour costs? Everything. Labour, yeah. real estate, it's a lot cheaper yeah. to buy a bit of land in the back box of India than it is, well, maybe anywhere except for the Simpson Desert. Labour, supply chain, land, rent, all that, everything. We, just, we, are, we are a high-cost manufacturer. It would be a big commercial risk for a company to say, well, I'm going to make amoxicillin. If once the shortage finishes, China can sell it wholesale for $1.50 a pack. We're costing yeah. $20 to make it. So it, it's not as easy as, you, as as just making things here. I mean, you could argue, well, we just won't ever import that stuff, so that's not going to be an issue. But but that doesn't help with access to drugs here, does it? It doesn't help. Uh... No. So, I mean, the government did, and it went through the Senate yesterday, the mm-hmm. National Reconstruction Fund, and $1.5 billion of that fund is directed towards medicines, medical yep. devices, pharma, PPE. Now, a commercial group of experts will make investment decisions on behalf of government. Some will be loans, some will be grants, some will be uh, 50-50 financing, all these models. I'll be looking at these things on commercial cases. And I think someone who who walks up with an amoxicillin proposal could struggle with a business case, uh, showing how they could be cost competitive against India or China. We have a number of things we are doing with medicine shortages, you know, bringing in overseas alternatives, enabling pharmacist dispensing of 220 megs instead of 140 megs and so forth, Uh, working with clinical groups, colleges on prioritisation, rationing, I hate to use that word. So we're doing a lot. Can't create uh, medicines out of thin air. The only other uh, current issue that I wanted to chat to you about was the psychedelics. Late 2021, TGA rejected down scheduling. Three months ago, there was an interim report saying we're probably going to reject rescheduling. And then in February, rescheduling. What happened? What changed? Well, really, there were two things. Firstly, and it wasn't the result of being lobbied. In fact, as I said on Radio National Background Briefing, I had to counsel my staff 
to ignore. It was more that the lobbyists could have actually turned our people against. You know, they're undermining their own case, to be frank. I was saying, look at the science, look at the medicine, and look and look at the law. There were really two things that, that changed. Uh, the first, I guess, the body of, was accumulating. We've got to remember this is not the evidence bar for registering a medicine. This is the evidence bar for allowing an unapproved medicine. And frankly, the evidence bar for a lot of the psychedelics is better than for medicinal cannabis. So there was another study published in the Jungian Journal of Medicine, which, although it wasn't powered all that large, you know, it wasn't a study of a thousand people or anything, it was fairly strong in its evidence that for certain people that there could be advantages, uh, you know, of the psychedelics in things such as major treatment-resistant depression or, or PTSD in this case. So one more study, remembering, and it's really important because this is, we are not looking at registration-level evidence and submit an application to the ARTG when they have a dossier and they've done all the phase three trials. And they're actually yeah. talking, some of the companies are doing that to FDA later this year, early next year, they say. But the bar is lower. We've just got to look that there's evidence of therapeutic effect and we can manage safety. The second big thing was legally it became clear to us that we could provide a second set of controls, and that was restricted to authorised prescriber. And so as soon as you do that, the use of it has to go through an ethics committee that looks at the trial design, or if it's not a trial, looks at the pr treatment protocol uh, from both an ethical and medical and data powering and uh, safety point of view, as yeah. well as TGA looking at it. It actually brings in these additional levels of oversight, noting that this is not a treatment to take home. And the other thing that we've been criticised is a lot of people said, oh, but even the evidence now shows that psychedelics only work in a small proportion of patients. Well, we know that SSRIs and SNRIs only work in a proportion of patients. So the two things were the mounting evidence and the fact that we could put this additional level of controls. It's yeah. not going to be a flood. I will bet you now in a few months' time there'll be groups complaining that it's so hard to get approval to do these, to do these uh, treatments. Yeah. It wasn't really an about-face. It was just that both from a legal point of view of this additional set of controls and the fact that there was yet another, probably paper number 13 or 14 in this field, yeah. in top-shelf journals, these were not in Mickey Mouse journals. And, and again, it would be odd if you had, as I said, except for things like paediatric epilepsy and multiple sclerosis, the evidence base actually for the psychedelics is actually stronger than, say, cannabis and pain. So what are you proudest of, John, in your time at the TGA? Oh, well, clearly the COVID response has to be a... Uh, something where the whole staff pulled together and really went beyond the pale. There was such a strength. There was such a sense of mission. You know, people yeah. were here. And, of course, you know, it was a time when most people were working from home. I had – we were essential workers. Many of us yeah. were working in here, coming yep. in through a ghost town. Oratory people had to come in. They couldn't take their stuff and do it in the kitchen at home. Well, no. So, you know, and they were here at all crazy hours. You know, our people were coming to work and working damned hard. That has to be the crowning achievement. But – I guess the biggest thing is that we've systematically been able to transform a regulatory system that's also a lot more accessible to patients and yes. to uh, doctors. Just to give you a statistic, because people know who we are and what mm -hmm. we do, we now get 87,500 phone and email inquiries from public, from healthcare professionals and from industry a year. And we're able to help a lot of people with their medications and so forth. So we've got a, apart from still doing what regulators do and checking products whether they work and whether they're safe, we have also expanded our role in public health dramatically, both in terms of a communication around products and compliance and enforcement in enabling access to some of these experimental and new therapies, and also even in supporting people who are developing things like new cell and tissue products. So just as a little quirky thing, Australia was the first country 
that actually approve fecal and microbial transplants for Clostridium difficile, the first regulator. Yeah. And of course, the other thing we did was totally rework the medicines and medical devices regulatory framework. So back in 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, one size fits all. Didn't matter if it was a cancer drug for, for or a drug for a rare disease with a well-defined population and critical need. Now we have priority, provisional, other pathways that can get those medicines to patients much earlier. Are you happy with the state of play, given that you're handing the baton on? Are you happy with how you're well, leaving it? you can never be entirely happy with everything, but it is time for someone else to, to have a go and to bring in some new things. Do we know who that is yet? No. Yeah. No, they haven't even interviewed for my replacement. <laughs> well, that's because it's a tough act to follow, John. Oh, I don't know. Thank you so much for your time. My thanks to Professor Skerritt, and we wish him all the best for what sounds like an action-packed retirement. I'm Kate Swanell, and we'll see you next time. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can search for us on your favourite podcast player and subscribe. Leave us a review if you like. If you have any news tips or want to chat, you can email me at wendy at medicalrepublic.com.au. The Tea Room is a production from the journalists at the Medical Republic. Visit us at medicalrepublic.com.au to keep up to date with all the latest news and views in general practice. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. We love to keep you informed. Thanks for tuning in.